Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello, ladies, and hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host and the star namesake. That's Victor Davis Hanson. He's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He hangs his hat on the Internet at VictorHanson.com. That's his official website. Talk to you a little more about that later, right at the beginning of the show here, Victor, we are going to talk about reparations madness, and we will get to that, your thoughts on it, right after these important messages. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I just saw the most recent piece on reparations. Actually, there's a very good one up on Daily Mail, which has kind of a wide view of how they, many municipalities yeah. and states are are advocating this I lunacy. That writer uh, emailed me yesterday for a quote. I don't think she used it. Um, well, why did have well, at it, Victor? You, okay, you, so you, reparations. The last time we went through this, we remember it was right prior to nine eleven, and David Horowitz had written a good takedown of it. And then we had nine eleven, and it seemed, and compared to these existential threat and absurdity. So, start off with the idea, Jack, that we live in an absurd age. To use that term, I mean, think about it. We have Elizabeth Warren, who says she's Native American. She's Harvard's first what affirmative action hire for Native American law professors. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we have Meghan Markle and Oprah swapping stories in Montecito, mansion to mansion, but also who's oppressed more. And then we had the Juicy Smollett 
defy the laws of chemistry with his bleach that never freezes and subarctic. So it's an absurd age, and it's even more absurd than the age of um, Al Sharpton. Remember, if the Jews want to get it on, and what to tell them to what to pin their yarmulks on and come over to my house. Remember that. And we talk- I remember that one. He said, we taught astro- astrology before Socrates and dim Greek homos. Remember that? So th- it's 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 even worse than that. So you have all these problems. So yeah. they say, we're going to give reparations. Okay, who gets it? Who gets it? Uh, do you do DNA test? Just make sure that you have what? The proper percentage? Ask Elizabeth Warren how that went. Or you just say, you know what? Some societies have done this before. They have established uh, rules of eligibility for racial categories. So we're going to go back to the old South and start the one drop rule. One black drop and you're black in reparations. Or we can go to Hitler and say yellow stars. We can have different color stars. Or we can go to our apartheid South Africa where everybody had a racial certificate to prove. A genealogist will prove what you are. Is that what you want to do? And that sounds absurd and sick, and it is, because the idea is sick. So when you say you're going to give uh, reparations to one particular group, you're going to have to adjudicate who that group is. And the casinos have had a terrible problem with people who say they're Native Americans. They want to get 150th or 100th of the gaming royalties, and they usually, usually use the one-drop rule or 116th rule. That's how that's where we're we're at. And then, you know, Jack, there's this um, there's this idea that even if you were African-American, if you're Caribbean black, what's your claim on American money or what's what would be a Barack Obama's claim that he's half black? So he gets half a reparations check, but he doesn't get any because his father was outside the Jim Crow dash slavery experience. Are you going to do that as well? So every black that that can't prove that he was here for how many generations? And then you have to ask, whose culpability is it, Jack? Whose culpability? Who caused it? I mean, this happened 158 years ago. Slavery was over. And I don't know. There's six generations, 25 years in most tallies. So your great, great, great grandparents who never owned slaves are going, you're the descendant of them, and you're going to give them money through your taxes to a descendant of a great, 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 great grandfather who was a serf. So people who don't know anything about slavery, never for six generations are going to give money to people who never suffered for six generations. That's what it is. And I don't know. I mean, in California in 1860, I'd looked at this not too long ago for an article I was writing, and there were 4,000 black people in a state of about 400,000, 1%, Jack, because California is the one that's the most advanced. And so this state was not a slave state. It was a free state. It was an overwhelmingly pro-union state. There were no major uh, battles of the Civil War. So it was completely outside that slavery experience, and there was only 1% of the population so you're going to, the descendants of that 1%, you're going to what? Give a million dollars, as some people said. Uh, five, five million, right? In San Francisco? Isn't that yeah, what and, uh, and so what, and what qualifies? I mean, so we don't let people vote if you're a rapist or a murderer, convicted felon. If you're a convicted felon? You kill somebody, you rape somebody, you hit somebody over the head, you're, you get you get reparations. They're going to mail the check to your cell if you've committed a violent crime. Nobody's talking about that. If you want to go back six generations, do you adjudicate? So a guy whose great, 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 great grandfather was from the first Michigan when he went with Sherman through Georgia and he freed 25,000 slaves. He's going to pay money. And maybe who knows, maybe somebody came and he's a descendant of a West African slave trader whose job and money, and, and we know that was a huge industry, was to take slaves from the interior of intra-black tribal wars and bring them out and sell them to the Portuguese and the the British and the Spanish. Is that person's, the descendant of that person's culpable? What if you, I don't know. So, and then there's these comparative grievances. Once you start paying reparations, we did it with the Japanese, but they were within living memory. They were the direct, the direct 
beneficiaries of reparations because they were the direct uh, victims of forced relocation against the Constitution, not six generations earlier. But are we going to say to Armenians, and how about Jews and Armenians? Well, you suffered more deaths than any other uh, group put together uh, when you came here. There was over a million and a half Armenian and six million Jews that were killed. And some of you got killed because we had very unfair, restrictive immigration. So, we're going to pay reparations. And by the way, there were zoning laws that said Armenians could not live in particular areas. There were racial quotas at Stanford and the Ivy League that barred Jews from coming to, to school. And uh, mm-hmm. so there's all of could, these. Could, groups. could and, you and, see an Armenian? Say, yeah, well, yeah, I was saying like freeze, freeze Turkish assets in the United freeze, States and yes. give me their reparation. Or say, you know, my great my grandmother came in 1915 and she wasn't let in. I had to go back and she was killed. I want reparations. You saw what it leads to with the Los Angeles City Council hot mic. Remember that? The f- three Latino members and the union guy. And yep. they were that's what we're getting to. And then there's a so. Think about reparations. The state owes me because uh, it's done something to me. Jack, there might be a plus and minus ledger calculus. So each particular group will have to be adjudicated on what they contributed or didn't didn't contribute. And it will be in the collective. And I don't mean that in the sense of an individual. I mean, collective. Just like reparations are paid for collectives, as if every African American is of equal merit in in deserving a reparation. So we're going to look at every particular group. So why don't we do this? Why don't we say, let's look at hate crimes. Which particular group has suffered inordinately and which has uh, inflicted inordinately? If you look at FBI statistics from 2019, it turns out that African-Americans have committed double the hate crimes of their demography, 12% to 13%, 25% of hate crimes are committed that are reported. And it looks like Asians suffer inordinately. So are we going to say, well, when we give the reparations, we have to deduct because there was a lot of destruction, toil, death committed by this collective against this collective. Because we're not looking at individuals, remember, this rep- reparations. And then, I, I, you know, I, I'm I'm on a roll, Jack. I know people are going to be offended by this, but it's reparations upon reparations upon reparations. Remember that Heritage Foundation study that said the Great Society from its inception in 1965 till now was $22 mm-hmm. trillion. That was yeah. almost all entitlements and redistribution, much of it racially based. And right. then you remember that Pigford 1 and Pigford 2, the black farmers that got an aggregate of $5 billion. Right. And maybe you can say to, you know, Joe Smith, that is the son of the, Oklahoma diaspora in Bakersfield who doesn't have one single parent that ever went to college and is making the minimum wage and has been subject to a lot of discrimination as the Okies were that uh, he can't go to Stanford. He's earned it. He's got a 4.5. He can't get into Stanford. He's got a perfect essay. Is that, does he have reparations? Said, you know what? I, I never had any privilege. I don't have any college mentors, but I can't get in because they're racially discriminating me against me. Is that a reparatory cause for him? And is it does it deduct from the African-American reparation said, well, affirmative action, court decisions, payouts, the great society. We have to take that amount of money and then deduct it from the reparatory claim. It has nothing to do with class, obviously, because, I mean, there's some idea about, you know, Net worth? Or is it is it going to be income? Does LeBron get it? The yeah, means Michelle tested. Get it? Right. Is it going to be means yeah. tested? Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't sure. And then where's the money come from, Jack? California says it's twenty five billion, but it's actually going to be about forty five billion. We can't, you know, like the federal government, states cannot roll over the debt. So where is it going to come from? And in, in the United States, we're thirty one, thirty one trillion dollars in debt. Social Security, 
trust fund is going to be bankrupt in 12 or 15 years. So we're just going to what? We're going to pay 12% of the population. We're not going to pay anybody reparations. We're going to borrow it at 5 or 6%. And there's no statutes of limitations, obviously. So it, it's, it doesn't really matter of anything in the past. But maybe somebody would make the argument, well, wait a minute. This, this issue was dealt with. 500, 600, more likely 700, according to latest statistics, were killed in the Civil War. And more than half of them came from the North. So you're saying that this country is absolutely responsible for chattel slavery in the South, but it fought a civil war where 400,000 people died trying to stop it. And that matters nothing, nothing at all. And do you really believe, finally, I'm going to stop because I'm getting kind of worked up. Do you really believe that right now, at this moment, when 50 to 55%, depending on the felony, of violent crimes are committed by about 4% of the population, African-American males between the ages of 14 and 40. That's about 52 to 55%. And they are about 55% of the victims of the 10,000 African-Americans that are killed every day, overwhelmingly by other blacks. Or if you look at 72% born out of wedlock, and, you know, I think it's 64, 65% grow up in one family, uh, one parent households. What I'm getting at is, do you really think that giving a million dollars, 800,000 is going to stop these pathologies? That these pathologies were not created by necessarily the black community. They were created by the great society that in- incentivized not getting married out of wedlock births. Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Tom Sowell has written eloquently of the structure of the black family prior to the Great Society versus after. So the idea that we're just going to write them a check, write this particular group, and then we, we don't worry about the rest of these problems. You think these problems are going to disappear? No. If all of a sudden a person's going to get $800,000 and say, I'm going to get married, I'm going to stay married. I want to make sure I'm, I'm a father to my child. I'm going to make sure nobody in my family ever com- commits a felony. I don't think so. I think there's deeper roots of those problems. They Absolutely. No family bi- structure. Yeah. No, it's, it's a bi-coastal elite. Here, write a check, and I'm done with it. And a uh, an elite black coalition with elite bi-coastal elite saying, you know what, all of these deplorables are racist. They always were racist, right? We'll write a check for you guys and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And then, of course, finally, each group, as I said earlier, is going to have claims. If anybody needs a claim, if you were going to go by this logic, as I said, the group that is systematically discriminated against and loses life-changing experiences in top universities that they have earned a slot and they are inordinately the victims of hate crimes in this country, and they commit fewer crimes per capita or percentage of the demography than any other group are Asian. And they have a history almost as checkered as the African-American in terms of being oppressed. They were blown up while they worked for the railroad. They were put in camps. They were restricted from immigration. And yet we don't hear about... um, and that's something that is well. Let's awesome. let's yeah. Let's talk about that in a little bit, Victor, because as you know, this that issue has been percolating and kind of exploded in the last couple of days in, uh, related to Virginia. So, if are you if you're are you finished on reparations? Because if I better, so, uh, I better be because I want to maintain my job. But I mean, it's okay. it's something you can't discuss. I tried to be logical about how bankrupt this idea. And it's a it's the pathway to the Yuka, former Yugoslavia, Rwanda. Believe me, yeah. they do that. California loses three hundred thousand people a year, and billion, and they are in the upper middle class tax bracket. One percent, Jack, of California households pay fifty percent of the income tax, and that's still not enough. As I said, we're forty five percent of the state income. We're forty five uh, billion probably in the hole, and we have billions of dollars that are fleeing the state. It's not just Elon Musk and Tesla. It's all of these companies. And do you believe if they pass this, 
And it works right. out to what, $200,000 in taxes on people in San Francisco. If the city were to pass it, what would happen? People would get up and leave. So I'm not going to stay here. I'm not yeah. going to pay all these taxes and they're going to yeah. leave. Well, they are. The, the people As who think said. this up are really don't know what they're doing. They're only heightening racial tensions or they're creating animosities. The Latino community is just adamantly against this. And th there's no majority in California. No particular racial majority is 51 percent. Yeah. Victor, we've come quite a long way from this, the concept of uh the content of character versus the color of of skin. Um, so, Victor, though, you mentioned the um, Asian uh, students getting hammered. And let's talk about that right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'd like to remind our listeners to visit victorhanson.com. That is Victor's official website. You'll find links to his many appearances on other podcasts and other you know, radio programs and, and the like his uh, writings for American Greatness and other publications, and the exclusive pieces he writes for VictorHanson.com. They're called Ultra Pieces, and those um, you, can, you, you have to subscribe to read them. $5 gets you in the door, $50 for the year. Uh, it's I, I calculate Victor has, he writes the equivalent of two books of material, original content for his website. If you are a fan of Victor... You, lo you love, obviously, you're listening because you like to hear what he has to say. But I bet you also like to read what he thinks. And to get the full Victor, you need to subscribe. So that's VictorHanson.com. Victor, um, yeah, I'm an old friend of Azra Nomani. And Azra used to write for the Wall Street Journal. And she's a, a parent who lives in Northern Virginia. And her child goes to this infamous Thomas Jefferson High School, one of the top-rated public high schools in the country. It is, was one of the epicenters of the parents fighting back against these school board officials that helped Glenn Youngkin win the governor's election. And since that uh, that historic election, that was at 15, 14 months ago, um, this new related scandal has percolated where these kids who have won national merit awards uh, have had the information about those reward awards suppressed, not sent on to colleges. The kids can't make the claim that they won the award, which, of course, will get could get some of them full scholarships, many of them, uh, you know, significant scholarships. And it seems that what was happening at one school has is hap has happened at at least 14 schools in northern Virginia. There are at least a thousand students, most of them are Asian American or many of them, are, I should say, are, are uh, Asian American. And uh, this is intentional. This is intentional by the school bureaucrats who want 
equity of outcome. And that's why it's okay to suppress news of your merit. It's funny. They call it merit, the merit scholarships. Yeah, Merit's demerit. dead. Yeah. Anyway, Victor, it's, it's quite a merit because yeah, it, have, hurt, uh, it hurts you. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it's famous. It's an institution in America that juniors in high school take the PSAT and then if they, until this aberration for decades, if students uh, do well on the SAT at a particular percentage, then they're declared national merit scholars. And if you're a national merit scholar, then the offers of scholarships and admissions from the best schools pour in. And people, I suppose, work and study to prep for these things, and they and they paid off. And then these... Uh, Teachers or administrators or both on their own, Jack, decided that this was not fully equal on the back end, the quality of results. So they took it upon themselves to suppress that knowledge. So they basically, I think, are exposed criminally or I should say civilly to huge lawsuits because there's probably a fantastic amount of money that was lost, an opportunity that was lost by they, by them discriminating against people who did well and by association by Asians. Well, it, the Asian community, you know, it, there's a lot of problems um, with finding justice. First of all, we've recreated the Asian community. When I was in college, there was a Japanese American, a Chinese American, the Indian American, the idea that uh, China that suffered 15 million casualties, deaths in World War II from Japan, that there was this ecumenical brotherhood or the Vietnam community or this, the Hmong community. They're no more uh, homogeneous than, you know, a Serbian and uh, an Italian or a I don't know if somebody who's Portuguese and somebody who's from Argentina with blue eye. I mean, there's right. And it's, it's just ridiculous. So first of all, the Asian community, I don't know who is what, but I do know that especially Asian immigrants have this work ethos and they understand how America works collectively. If I could stereotype that education and professions result in higher income, and more opportunity. So they really push their children. And the problem is that they are being punished as the good minority. Or you see young Asians who are at Berkeley or Stanford, and they're embarrassed because they're getting flack from the other minority group and said, you know what, the white people are using you as the ideal minority because they say to us, well, you haven't suffered like the Asians do necessarily. And the Asians came here and look at the Asians. If they had a lot of racism and they're outperforming whites on college admission scores and GPAs and income groups are one of 17 groups. If you look at the 17 ethnic groups that outperform so-called white, uh, so-called white groups in terms of household income, almost all half of them, two thirds are Asians. So the point is that uh, they're very dangerous, Jack, because they they threaten the entire affirmative action, identity politics, woke industry, and people despise them. They despise them just the way they do black conservatives. I mean, I say people, I mean the that industry and its its uh, icons, because they look at these people that are Asian, or they look at black conservatives, or any any minority that is, does very, very well. And they'll think they're going to be used by the majority culture to say, see, racism was not an impediment, systematic racism or systemic racism or microaggressions. It didn't matter. And so that's that's the problem. And again, they have I think they have legal writs and cause against against these school districts. They should put all of any administrator that knowingly withheld that information should be immediately suspended. Immediately. And yeah, it's, it's like it's like racketeering, too. It I is. mean, they, they clearly colluded with each other. The Rico McGurn, Bill McGurn, my old buddy, said Rico was made for guys named Rico. But but the Racketeering Influence Act is, uh, to me, this seems tailor-made for it. I mean, they conspired to, to harm It seems like a criminal offense. It really does. And I think they were instructed to participate in the PSAT test and the National Merit Program. They were responsible or they had 
I think, had agreed as part of their institution to at least give the results in a prompt fashion to the test takers, and they violated that. So that I think they're culpable, and they're in a I, I, they're in a state that has a, a, a sane governor. So I think there will be yeah. consequences, but it dovetails into this repertory question that we're talking about, right? And that is, uh, what what is? I mean, we have this idea that we go back six generations to find culpability to explain unhappiness or lack of parity that can't be ever attributed to an individual's choices. It has to be a collective. Okay. But in the here and now, we're discriminating. We're racist. We're using the power of the state, the school district, the university to destroy people's lives on the basis of race. And we call that victory or we call that wonderful. It's sick. It's sick what we're doing. And there has to be some consequences of it. And when people say we want reparations because my great, great, great grandfather was a slave, then somebody else is going to say, I need reparations right now because I was systematically racially discriminated against through a quota system that looked at my skin and said, this is not the correct skin and your color is now the correct skin. And we're going to give you something by taking it away from that person. And that's what it is. And so it's it's very dangerous because when you start looking at the history of Yugoslavia and the Serbians and the Kosovars and the Bosnians and the Albanians and the Macedonians, etc., you can see, you know, the same ancient uh, blood writ against another group. And it just magnifies and magnifies. And then people start to identify as their primary identification becomes their race. And that's. It's I don't know how we're going to recover from this because the left has just said to them, it's essentially said to the nation, we don't have a program socially, economically, politically, military. We don't have a program that people want. Everything that we do turns to dross. We we help cause the homeless program. We are responsible for the spiking crime. We are responsible for out of control inflation, energy, and we and we can't get public support. But we know one thing that we can turn each other against each other with race and inflame the situation and call people names. And that's what they're doing. And it won't stop until 51 percent of the population say, not me. I'm not going to participate in this. Nope. Call me any name in the world, but I'm not going to judge a person on the color of their skin, much less is my institution, my company, my firm going to do that. And yet they're all scared. Yeah. And uh, I guess ultimately they're scared of what? Violence? Is that what it is? The 2020 type of violence? Because a lot of this was accelerated after 2020, the 120 days of violence in the streets. So I don't know. I mean, I, I want a, a country where we go back and we, indiv- we individualize people. So if I see an African-American student, he's not right. African-American. He's a person, just like a white right. student or an Asian person. He doesn't belong to a collective. He's not responsible for the collective good or the collective bad of that particular tribal group. I'm not responsible for people who did terrible things that are white, and I can't claim credit for people who did good things that are white. It's up to me. I'm an individual. Right. And I sink or swim by my own record or lack of record of achievement. Yeah. Until we get to that point, we're never going to get over this. And there's too much money to be made now and too much opportunity. But we're getting to a, a point of absurdity, Jack, because race and class are no longer synonymous. Not when you have a huge upper middle class African-American successful um, group and you have per capita incomes uh, that are just startling in their gain. It's been it's been right. very successful when you right. turn American capitalism and the free market open to people and you have an equality of opportunity and you have civil rights legislation that says you cannot discriminate by the basis of race and you let people's natural talent and and Victor, so there's too many there's too many people making too much money too much money. on this stick now well, I, I, mean, diversity, I mean the college diversity yeah, equity inclusion Fifteen thousand administrators are not all uh, DEI people, but a lot of them have grown. And that's another right. weird, weird thing that 
the faculty unions, the professors, they were always bitching about administrating administrative bloat. And I, that's but not when it came to these new SARS that started appearing after 2020 in, in droves. Right. Well, not only are colleges, every freaking school in America and 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 every one of them has consultants coming at them out of the gazoo to offer DEI courses for kindergartners or whatever the hell. I don't there think is a, there's I don't a think lot left, of money being made yeah, out there. I don't think the left understands what it's created because you talk to people and I'm talking about liberals in the Bay Area. And I and I if I go to dinner with them or I talk to them or I see them in various occasions, they just say things. Matter of factly, now they'll say things like, "Well, my son, my son goes to the Menlo School. He's got a four point. He can't get in school. Of course, he's a white male. They just accept it. And when they see somebody else with 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 lower scores, these are left wing people, mind you. They say, "Well, that person got in because of our racist system," and they just accept it. It's a very cynical, angry attitude. And it's it's driving the country apart. It's driving. And, you know, we had people like Al Sharpton, who now has been an icon, but he hasn't changed from the Crown Heights violence and the torn of Raleigh that he stirred up. And then we had Jesse Jackson and Jaime Town. We had uh, Farrakhan and gutter religion. We had all of these Malcolm X even, you know, uh, advocated violence against what? collectively against white people. And we've had the Bull Connors and the white, their counterparts and other people like that. But the difference is it was it was not mainstreamed into the center of society. There was not it wasn't the corporate boardroom. It wasn't exactly. Disney. Right. It was it wasn't the move the all star game because, you know, Delta Airlines says so stuff like that. And right. it started with Obama. I keeps driving this point home when he created this, recreated or re-emphasized this word diversity. And he defined it by race, not ideological diversity or character diversity. He just simply said, if you are not white, you're part of what was essentially an updated rainbow coalition. And that really drove. And then when he started saying things, everybody says, well, you know, he was a great hero. No, he was the most smooth, slick eloquent, mellifluous divider we've ever had. When he started saying things like my, you know, my grandmother was basically a racist and was afraid of black men and the Cambridge police, you know, is culpable and police, everybody knows what the way police are. And Trayvon looks, would look, my son would have looked like Trayvon. You know, what if Bill Clinton had said, ah, this is, uh, if there was a death or something, so this is the she, uh, this poor young girl, this poor young kid would have looked like the son I never had, blue eyed. What would people say? Or a president said that? It's just it's incomprehensible if you know if uh, somebody was. I don't know. I don't want to get into it, but if somebody loses. Uh, sees a death and you identify immediately and say, my child that I never had would have looked just like that child, meaning they would have been something superior because on the basis of their race and you identify only on the racial aspect. It's a very sick society. I think everybody should realize that when you think back to Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, George Zimmerman was half Peruvian and all he had to do. Yes, all he was create. They created a new word in their parlance. The New York Times. They doctored. Remember, they doctored CNN. They doctored the the photos to uh, airbrush away the cuts on him, and then they doctored the nine eleven tape that they released so that it sounded like he was more racist or racist at all. But my point is, all he had to do was play their game, the Elizabeth Warren game. All he had to do was say, "My name is not a Germanic." George Zimmerman. I have one drop. In fact, I have 50% drops. I am not white. I am. My name is not George. It's Jorge. And my name is not Zimmerman of my father, who's Germanic and sounds too white, but it's my mother from Peru, Mesa. My name is Jorge Mesa. And he could pronounce it that. All he had to do was that. And then the story would have been Hispanic versus African-American. 
And that would have been the end of it. And that's how sick this society is with the nomenclature. And that's why everybody understands that. That's why you have an Elizabeth Warren. That's why you have a Ward Churchill. That's why you have a racial Doza. That's why you have all these people. And when you look at college admissions, one of the biggest problems that these admissions officers have is black, Czech, Latino, Czech, white, Czech, mixed race, Czech, Jack. So people are checking mixed race and a lot of the admissions officers know that these people are not mixed race, but it's, and a lot of them are white. And so like if Stanford has 23% white and it has 15 or so mixed race, a lot of those mixed race are probably white people. But the point is, what do they do when somebody says mixed race and how do they ascertain they're not? Because you know what? They're scared to death to right. call that person up and say, you know what? We've got a good tradition from the old South or Hitler had some pretty good genealogists or the DNA will really make the apartheid system work. It, and we're, we're going to use right. this. So we want proof that you're of mixed race because once they go down that line of authenticity and, and trying to find out and verifying a claim, then you get into spooky, eerie, crazy territory. <laughs> Yeah. 23 and me. I'm 7% Tanzanian. Who knew? Right. Now give yeah. me my scholarship. Absolutely. And that's what they don't want to do. So they would rather not talk about it. And so they let that slide. And the funny thing about all this is <laughs> when I walk across the Stanford campus after 2020, and I see that in, you know, when you're letting in the new class, 23% so-called white and the year before i think it was 40 something and you're changing you you want to visibly change the student body because you're a racialist you then you look at the people who are going in now the administrative buildings at the very highest echelon and this is true of all these ivy they're mostly white i know there's a black a woman who's now president of harvard but the most the people who are doing this is what i'm saying they operate on the premise that they have reached the pinnacle of their career trajectory and they're untouchable. Or even if they were to be fired, it doesn't matter. They're in their 60s. They've made money. They're, they, they've got their everything they want. And they're never subject to the consequences of their ideology. What I mean by that right. is the provost of Yale or the president of MIT or the dean at Stanford, their children never come into the house and say, you know what, dad? I had a 4.5. I studied every day. I I was an Eagle Scout. I had a perfect desk. I didn't get in anywhere that I wanted. And the father says, well, these are the principles we play by. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with Cal State Fresno. It's got a good nursing program. It's got a good ag program. I want you to go down to Fresno. They don't say that, Jack. They say, oh, that's not going to happen to you. I got on the phone and I called old Bud and I called Bill right. and I called Frank and we knew that's how they do it. Same thing with Silicon Valley people. And so it's it's basically a creation of um, white people, very wealthy white people to go after the white working class, the clinger who are expendable and can be quota can be have quotas applied to them so that they can free up space for basically African-American, Latino people who don't meet their own criteria. And I'm not going to say whether the criteria is valid or not, but it's their criteria. I didn't make it up. They right. make up the criteria. They abide by it. Pressure is against it. That doesn't, it doesn't result in the proper politically correct results. They change the criteria for some groups, not for everybody. And then they say, oh, my God, we only have 5,000 slots, and we're going to have to take the 12% up to 18% or the 10% up to 16%. Where does that come from? We're going to take it from the white male, but we've got all these Silicon Valley people giving money. We've got all these deans. We've got all these provosts. We've got all these wealthy alumni. We've got to get their kids in. So we'll just take it from Bill Smith and, and Merced. He doesn't need it. He doesn't, right. And that's what they do. And it so it's, a, it's a class thing. It really is. Yeah. As most things are. Well, Victor, this, uh, speaking of people of of uh, 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 Asia, I'm 
I'm always a little perplexed when India was considered part of the, uh, you know, Asian, Asian American. I thought it was separate. Separate, but regardless, yeah, that started in the 1990s, I think, or maybe about 2000 later. I think it started under the Obama administration, and I, I could see it how it filters down to the here and now because uh, I have a lot of uh, Sikh neighbors, Punjabi neighbors. I know them; it's a wonderful community. But I noticed something that when uh, Punjabis were considered part of the Asian collective or part of the non-white group. They became very sensitive to that, that they were now a, a, an official kind of minority, and uh, both in the positive and negative sense, in the sense that they felt they were being discriminated against, which they were, as being overrepresented, but also that they felt that they could have claims against the majority culture because they were oppressed as non-whites. And that was, that, that was a very peculiar situation. Right. Well, since uh, Indian Americans are part of of uh, a minority, you would think someone like Nikki Haley would would get better treatment from uh, from the media. But uh, let's talk no, no, about no. her. Yeah. <laughs> and let's be, let's do that, though, right after uh, this important final message. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, there was a long and awkward way of me trying to get into this next next uh, matter. Uh, Nikki Haley has had an interview or two this past week, uh, and she, you know, walked up to the edge of saying she was going to run for president. She was a successful governor of South Carolina. She, well, you can you can give your opinion. I th- seem to be a successful uh, ambassador to the UN. Under uh, pres- appointed by President Trump, uh, I don't know that she cuts it or not. Now, obviously, when you run, if you run for president, you're running against other people. But Victor, I'd be interested in your thoughts of uh, Nikki Haley as as somebody who you know, could be president of the United States someday. All these candidates. The way to look at all of these candidates in the Republican and and there's not going to be as many on the Democratic side. I think we'll see is what what is the one thing they have to overcome so donald trump what does he have to overcome he has to overcome that he it's not that he can't govern it's not that he doesn't have a great agenda the MAGA thing works spectacularly it is to what degree can he stop going down the dead ends the cul-de-sacs the attacking and you know awful you're crazy you're ugly that kind of stuff the personal invective if he can stop that and stop what he did with Ron DeSantis and Mitch's wife and Youngkin's name sounds Oriental and change the Constitution to reverse the last, all that stuff that was unnecessary. If he can control that, then he's in good shape. What is it about uh, Ron DeSantis? Ron DeSantis has a superb record of governance. He's, he's a, a very, strong conservative but the the question about him was does he have the fire the trumpian fire in the belly i think he saw that he went after the martha's <laughs> vineyard people he went after disney he went after the school boards in florida he he did everything to show people that he was not um the jeb bush type of republican that was going to bring back into the fold the never trumper so he did fulfill that and that's why I think he's rising in the polls. That was the doubt that people said about it. what is Pompeo's one thing he has to do. Well, it's very hard for a secretary of state. He's a wonderful man. He's got a great record of secretary of state. But if you don't have a constituency, that is, you're not from a major elected. Uh, you haven't held a major elective Congress, former congressman. It's very difficult for them to be elected to anything. And he has not been a governor or a senator or et cetera. So he's a secretary of state, sort of like William Jennings Bryan, um, four times run for president. And he was made secretary, but he doesn't have a constituency yet. If he can create a constituency, then he will be. So what is Nikki Haley's challenge is a long winded getting back to what your question was. And it's simply, is she a rhino? Is she She's smooth. She's articulate. She can say she's combative. She did a wonderful job in the UN. And the question is, uh, 
does she believe in the new conservative Republican Party or is she going to take us back to McCain dash Jeb dash Romney dash? And that's what she has to prove. So she will, I think, look for incidents, issues, policies, uh, occasions where she can show people that she's genuinely conservative. And then how does this all boil down on the on the right side? You have eight to 10 to 15 million people who will bolt and they did bolt against McCain and they bolted against Romney didn't show up. And that's why they lost. That was they created the blue wall. You can call them whatever you want. Reagan Democrats. You can call them blue. Uh, you can call them. I don't know what you'd call them. Reagan Democrats, blue dog Democrats, parole voters, whatever they were. They were conservative and they did not vote for the Republican ticket. And you need them all. of them. So there's no margin. And then there's eight to 10 to 15 million. I guess you call them soccer moms, swing voters, right. independent voters. And they get repelled by. Trump's, you know, he's an asshole or you were ugly or that kind of stuff, right? Or posting Melania's picture next to Ted Cruz's wife and saying, see, my wife's that in the primary, that kind of stuff. So you've got to get, you've got to get both those groups and the candidate who do, who combine those two groups while holding on to the mainstream will win. And so they each have challenges because they each tend to be on one or the other side of the ledger. And Trump, to get that independent suburban voter, has to show that he's disciplined and he's not going to waste time in a Twitter war or making fun of somebody's looks. And, uh, and then there's a, there's a natural to thing, big, too. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, you, you may some people are great one on one, great in a small room. I, I, I was at a lunch with Mike Pompeo a couple of years ago with this organization I was on board on. He was terrific. But I think in a larger audience, it dissipates. And some people rise to the occasion with the larger audiences. Scott Walker was great in a small crowd. Big crowd, TV, you know. So That's what everybody says, that they don't want to come out too early and say, I'm for Trump, I'm for DeSantis. Because they remember 2016, Scott Walker was the ideal candidate. He was in a purple state. He took on the teachers unions. He was fearless. And yet he got up on the stage and... They dissected him, and he didn't do well, and he pulled out very early. He had zero support in the polls, so we don't know which of these candidates is going to you know, do that. So it doesn't make any sense right now for the majority of voters say, I'm for this person, for this person, until you actually see them interact and go on the attack against the left and have these debates. Uh, and so that's what we're looking for. And right. I always remember that. That was funny. When she came up the other day in a weird context, just came to my mind. You remember that crazy woman on The View, Sunny Hostin? Yeah. And they had her on. You remember? Oh, about she made said that she was using her name falsely. Or yeah, it was so yeah. weird because her real name is, isn't it something like Nem- Nemrata? Nimrata Haley. I mean, her husband's not Indian, but so she just took Nimrata and that, they always called her Nikki. Yeah. It was it was a it was a derivative of her Indian name. And this hostin was saying how funny and how she tried to acclimatize herself to white culture. And then somebody said, this is what I'm getting at. Well, your name is Sunny. And it's not right. it's not connect. I think her name. I think she was half uh, African-American or Caribbean and half uh, Latino. And I think her name was something like Asuncion, but it had nothing to do with Sunny. So she was actually projecting what she had done and taking a commonplace American nickname, Sonny, and using it instead of her more ethnic, true name, which apparently she thought was too hard to pronounce or she was embarrassed of, and then projecting that onto Nikki Haley where it didn't fit. It was very strange. It is Nimrata. You're right. That is her. It's a sick. uh, It's a sick. It's a sick. We're a very sick society. We're alien right now. We're so obsessed with this. You know, we've got to be like Rwanda. We've got to be like Yugoslavia. We've got to be like Iraq. Let's let's get going. Gets quicker the better we get there. That's how we're. we're, Well, let's let's. Talk about one last quick political thing, Victor, because we don't have all that much time left. And that it's an election that isn't even an election yet. And that's uh, in in Indiana with uh, Mitch Daniels, um, who 
you know, I got to be honest, I'm not sure that he he may have said something like I'm interested in running for Senate in the Senate seat. And Jim Banks, who is a uh, three term, four term congressman, young guy. And he was uh, in the previous Congress. He was the head of the, the Republican Study Committee in the House. He was the chairman, very conservative group. And and he's going to run and all there's been a lot of outpouring of organizations or, well, uh, political politicos, but the and the club for growth attacking Mitch Daniels. So Mitch Daniels, to my mind, maybe yours will find out, was a successful governor of Indiana, and he was a very successful president of Purdue University. I think he he was uh, really against the grain of the way the the culture is, has been changing and academia he stuck by free speech he made he kept the cost flat for students over the tenure of his uh, his term there he's okay you mentioned before you know about uh, um you mentioned mitt romney before and i rem- i was at something at yale uh yale uh, william f buckley program at yale it it was an event there in november of 2012 right after the election and it was so discouraging. Remember, I mean, Romney, you thought he yeah. had Obama on the ropes or that debate. And Mitch Daniels was the speaker. And actually, it was, it was he was terrific. He was terrific. But it brought out some anger. Like, why the F didn't you step up and run for, for, for uh, president? That was because Which, of the, as you said, the wife matter, right? I well, I didn't say, it, but yeah, that is true. But well, anyway, I'm I'm blathering, and I should shut up. But others say he's a successful guy. But the ferocity of some of the attacks on him, I don't already understand are kind of shocked because um, I don't understand at all. And he he had a he had a problem with his wife. They were separated, and she had an involvement, and it made him actually look noble. I thought he he handled it with a great deal of character. But in our ethos, if a, a woman goes leaves her husband, then there's something wrong. And that's crazy. So I, I thought that that shouldn't have been a campaign liability or a decision that suggest, but I think he felt that he had children and he had to, he couldn't run, but he's a superb, he was, a, as you say, he was a superb governor. I had a, you know, I met him two, two or three times and we at the Bradley foundation, we honored him with a, um, Bradley Award. I can't talk about the discussions of that, but every I think everybody agrees that he was a spectacular governor and should be rewarded accordingly. But I, you know, it was very funny. I'll relate very quickly before we finish um, an anecdote. I was a visiting professor at the Naval Academy in 2000, 2003, right, uh, as you know, when the lead up to the Iraq War and then the April invasion, March and April, excuse me, and it was very controversial, but right around, oh, the end of April, when, when the statue fell and George W. Bush's uh, uh, ratings were about 70 percent, there was a sense of euphoria that the war was over. National Review, uh, you remember your, uh, what was her name? She was a wonderful person. You know where that was your Washington? Cato uh, Byrne? Yes, Cato Byrne was in Washington, and she wanted to have a dinner of National Review affiliate people in that area. And uh, Mitch um, uh, Daniels was, remember, he was the head of OMB, Office of Management and the Budget for Bush, in the first two years. And in case, they had all of these uh, grandees there. And I don't know, I because I was writing, I had been writing for two years for National Review, I was invited. So I drove up in the Naval Academy to Washington. There was this very nice restaurant and they i don't think it was a sign seat i just ended up sitting next to mitch daniels and this was before he was governor i think right it and, would have been yep yes and we and everybody was toasting the victory in iraq and uh you know they were all excited it looked like it was all over with and there were some members of the Bush administration, I think, were there, as I recall, too. And uh, they were, I don't know, they were very ecstatic. And I think he was on, he was there, and I introduced myself, and he introduced, and he, I, I, I remember that they had confirmed him. I mean, it was like, in those days, a hundred to nothing. And he was on the national security, but he was quiet. 
quiet, 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 quiet. Everybody was ecstatic, and he he didn't trouble. And so I said, "Is there anything wrong?" And he said, "We're spending too much money, and we're at, we're on a trajectory where we're going to double the debt." That's what the left does. We don't do that. We can't afford that. We've got to show the country right now that we're physically responsible. And I said, well, we just had this war. And he said, doesn't matter. We've got to balance the budget because we're sending the wrong signal. If we're in power and we're spending like drunken sailors, then what do you think the left is going to do? And he almost forecast perfectly the doubling right. of the debt under Bush, on my 80% almost, and then the doubling under Obama and then Trump. So I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to resign. I'm going to go back to Indiana and run for and have a physically sound ship. And I saw him later. I talked to him on another occasion when he was. And the first thing he did when he got to President Purdue was said the tuition is too much. We're, rate, we're increasing the rate of tuition beyond the, the rate of annual inflation. And it's intolerable and it's not fair. And there's too much blow. And we're not going to charge more. We're going to cut. And we're going to live within our means. And he did at Purdue. He started a whole phenomenon. Right. That he said, and he said to me, if we can do this, then other, uh, other comparable schools that are in competition will lose out and they will do it and it will snowball and let the market start to play. And the market has not played because of student loan guarantees by the government that basically gave the green light for universities to raise their tuition above. It was really, it was, it was wonderful. And right. so I was very impressed with him. And he, he just sat there where everybody was celebrating. He was not sullen at all. He was very smiling. But I was sitting next to him. And during the evening, I was really intrigued by him because uh, he was worried about the. And I just I remember I said to him, we probably wouldn't remember. And I said, you know, the sinews of war is money. It's a famous quote from Cicero. And I said, you're, you're probably right. And he said, we spent a lot of money on this war. Well, this was only in the first year, you know, first three months. Right. It was still war. It wasn't nation building yet. Yeah, it wasn't right. the trillion dollar plus, And he was already worried. And he said, oh, my God, we're coming out of a Democratic administration that with Genrich and Clinton, whether you agree with them or not, whether we should have raised taxes or co they balanced the budget the last two years. I mean, and he was giving credit to Genrich and and Clinton. And he said, now we're not doing that. And I'm very worried about the message it's sending and it's going to start a spiral. And of course, here we are now, to, as you and I speak, $31 trillion in debt. Yeah. And Staggering. had he, he been uh, a president, I don't think we'd be here at all like that. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, the good people of Indiana give him and anyone who I wants do. to run the chance to run and uh, that you know it's funny the club for growth once upon know, a time what happened, it, what happened to them well they they they've been in washington a long time maybe I don't know what happened uh, or, or also the head of the club i can't remember his name it's terrible he was a for, dave mcintosh who's from indiana maybe there's something there I, you know? I don't know but it seems to me that gosh people from conservative fiscal conservatives and conservatives in general from Ohio and Iowa and Indiana and Michigan and Wisconsin that's the the bedrock of the country yeah yeah when you see a conservative from that area you just have a natural trust in them and why you would try to attack somebody before he'd even announced for the what would be the what was the sin that he wanted to balance the budget and you might have to raise tax. Is that what it was? I don't well, know. Well, he he had way back, he had said, let's put social issues. Uh, let's not prioritize them because we do have to deal with with uh, the budget. And look, I'm a social issues guy, but you have to you have to you have to pick your battles and you prioritize things. And I think he was generally right. There's no reason you couldn't push some of the social issues at the same time, focusing on not bankrupting our grandchildren. I think and that's the point. It wasn't when I talked to him and I'm just thinking back 21 years ago, he wasn't ignoring social issues. He just said it won't matter if we're all broke. And I think at the time I was talking about him, I said, I can remember they were saying, you remember they were saying the Iraq war was going to cost, I think I'm trying to remember the secretary that of the, uh, Treasury, or maybe it was one of the um, Lindsay, I think his name was, was saying it was, I don't know, 
Oh, Larry Lindsay got yeah. in big trouble because he yes. said it was. Yes. Yeah. And Paul right. Wifowitz, remember, they brought, grilled him and he said 50 million and right. 200 million. And he right. I remember he said, Billion, right. Yeah. yeah, he said this is and he was a member of the administration. He said, I can't I have to I have to be honest. And I'm the head of OMB and this is going to cost uh, it's not going to cost, uh, you know, 100, 200 billion. It's going to cost, you know, half a trillion dollars. And he had penciled it all out. And he I think he was trying to say that I can no longer work for the Bush administration because my calculus is an antithetical to theirs. And I have a responsibility to the American people. So I'm going to resign. But I'm not just going to go crawl away. I'm going to go back to my home state, find a natural constituency that agrees with me and run for governor and then use that as a national platform to warn people about debt. It's exactly yeah. what he did. So yeah. I think if he were to, to run, it would be very helpful. Well, yeah. whatever Mitch Daniels has, we you're right. Whether it's on the the, the political level or the or the, as you, the academic level, he has been a rock star. He has. He's a wonderful person. I can't say enough about him. And he's the kind of people we need. And um, he doesn't have to talk about socialism because he is conservative, right? In the, in the traditional sense of the word. And uh, need a lot yeah. more people like him. Well, Victor, you and I have been plagued in this broadcast by background noises of dogs, yours, mine. George over here is making a little bit of noise. So let's, it's time to end the show anyway. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking out my farm window and I see four uh, half breed and sort of Queensland healer Australian cattle dogs. And they're all, they're almost ready to eat and they're angry and they're giving me dirty looks. Uh, it's we'll, we'll, we'll let, dinner time. So I got to we'll, get look, off. We'll get the, we'll get you there, but we thank our listeners. Let me, Hey, I'll be quick. Um, Jack Fowler writes civil thoughts, free weekly email newsletter. You can sign up for it at civil thoughts.com. It's a, it's a publication of the center for civil society at American philanthropic. Thanks to all who listen, visit victorhanson.com. Thanks to those who at uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes rate this show. And some thank you, those of you who leave comments, which we read. And here is one. Thoughts on Turkey. That's what it's titled. I was taking my Saturday walk and listening to the latest podcast by Professor Hansen and Sammy Wink when VDH started to give his thoughts on Turkey. It was a well-informed explanation of the dangers he sees in Turkey being a member of NATO and its potential conflicts with Greece and neighboring countries in the region. He also mentioned the ties Turkey has with Russia and Iran. After my walk, I came home and saw a front page headline in today's Wall Street Journal that the White House wants to provide Turkey with F-16 fighter jets. To quote VDH, whose podcast was days before the headline, it's pretty scary. That's the quote. That's FJK363. Thank you, FJK363, for your kind uh, comments about Victor and all others who have done the same. Thank you, Victor. And um, I hope you have a great rest of your week. And to all of you, God bless. And thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Much appreciated. 